Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. In recent episodes, we have been studying Paul's letter to the Romans, which addresses conflict between Jewish and Gentile Christian converts in the city of Rome. As we have noted, the book of Romans presents two ways of living. The first way is the life governed by mimetic rivalry, the path trodden by most of humanity, which inevitably attracts divine wrath. But Paul argues that God has rescued the church at Rome from this lifestyle so that they might experience God's grace and peace as they imitate Jesus' example of a life lived without mimetic rivalry. In chapter 6, Paul argues that through baptism, the Romans have buried their mimetic rivalry and should therefore repent and be reconciled with one another. Let's pick up the story now from chapter 7. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who are under the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while she lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is still alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For while we were living in the flesh, Our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which once held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Continuing on from his discussion of burying sin in baptism, Paul likens the Romans' unhealthy relationship with the Jewish Torah to a marriage which has been dissolved through death. Because the Romans' mimetic rivalry has been killed and buried beneath the baptismal waters, that relationship cannot be rekindled. For this reason, Paul urges the Romans to abandon their disputes and rivalry over Torah observance to pursue a new relationship with Christ. As the Romans imitate Jesus' non-mimetic lifestyle, they no longer experience the death wrought by their sinful passions, but enjoy unity, blessing and grace through the Spirit. In this passage, Paul suggests that the Jewish Torah from which the Roman Christians have been freed once aroused sinful passions in their bodies. At first glance, the law appears to be the problem. But Paul addresses this issue as he continues his discussion of the law from verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the command, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. 
The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For if we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do something right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Now that was a big chunk of text, but I want to read these passages together. This idea of what scholars call the wretch in Romans chapter 7, which leads into Romans chapter 8, because some people see a big contrast in these two portraits. 
In chapter 7, Paul describes himself as a wretched man who's enslaved to sin, enslaved to the law of his members in the body of death, and he cannot do what he wants to do. But then in chapter 8, he says there's no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. They no longer live by the law of sin and death. So there's two portraits here. What's going on? Some people want to point to Paul's wretched man as his pre-conversion state. And I can understand that because this portrait seems to contrast the portrait delivered in Romans chapter 8, the very next chapter. Others interpret Paul's wretched man as describing his daily struggle with sin and this daily war between the flesh and the spirit in his everyday life, which many Christians understand quite well. While I see merits to both arguments, I'm going to unpack this from a mimetic perspective, as I tend to do. And when we look at it from a mimetic perspective, this passage is quite interesting. As René Girard has argued, prohibitions and laws are aimed at stifling mimetic rivalry within communities. Prohibitions place protective barriers around certain actions and thoughts which threaten to generate a potent rivalry within the community. For example, adultery and incest are strictly prohibited because these acts have the potential to generate a powerful rivalry between males who fight over the sexuality of a single female. Also, the prohibition of murder inhibits the cycle of blood vengeance, which might also culminate in a mimetic crisis. In and of themselves, these prohibitions are perfectly upright, reasonable and helpful. They aim to minimise violence and in a sense are probably quite successful. But what laws and prohibitions fail to grasp is their tendency to actually escalate mimetic rivalry. You see, we always want what we can't have. We have this proverb which kind of communicates this idea. The forbidden fruit is always the sweetest. Why? Because when we're told we can't have something, it becomes an obstacle to our desire. And the thing about obstacles is they don't dissipate desire. In fact, they inflame and kindle it. By these means, mimetic rivalry manipulates and perverts the law so that it actually fuels mimetic desire. So while there's nothing evil in the intention or the practice of the law itself, mimetic rivalry manipulates and uses the law for a perverse purpose. Knowing this, Paul insists that the law is proper, good and upright even though he knows it has facilitated the kindling of covetousness within him. What is covetousness? It is desire, illegitimate desire for something that we should not or could not have. Covetousness describes the process of conceiving and pursuing our mimetic idols, which inevitably brings us into rivalry and conflict with one another. But the more the law tells me not to covet, and the more I tell myself and chastise myself for coveting different objects, the more they become lucrative and desirable for me. Paul names and acknowledges this exact process 
and describes the way it plays out in his own life. Paul is caught in a sort of double bind. He knows that he must not covet because the law tells him so. But this same prohibition only serves to generate desire and jealousy within him. This double bind is kindled sin within Paul, which is ultimately killing him. In fact, Paul acknowledges his daily struggle against mimetic rivalry. Although he ultimately desires to live a non-mimetic lifestyle, mimetic desire drives him to break the law and do the things which he hates. Whenever he desires to do good inwardly, mimetic desire residing in his members foils his best laid plans. Paul's experience reminds us of Israel's journey through the wilderness, which we saw in the book of Numbers. As you may recall, the people repeatedly cave in to their sinful cravings as they become distracted from their ultimate goal of entering the promised land of Canaan. In a similar way, Paul is fully committed to the noble desire of experiencing God's grace and peace by living a non-mimetic lifestyle. But he becomes distracted along the way by sinful desires which draw him into sin and suffering. Even though he knows these poor decisions have painful and evil consequences for him, for some reason there is some law at work in his members which drives him to choose this sinful, destructive path again and again. In frustration, Paul laments his plight as he exclaims, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He then goes on to answer his question, in Romans chapter 8, the very next chapter. God has and will continue to deliver Paul from his struggle with sin, despite his own weakness. In what follows, Paul describes how the Holy Spirit resurrects the dying, sinful body by setting free from the law of sin and death. In other words, this transformation and ability to refuse mimetic rivalry and pursue a non-mimetic lifestyle is described as a supernatural awakening. Yet as we read on, Paul tells us that Christians play an active role in this work of the Spirit. Reading on now from verse 12. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if according to the flesh you live, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as children, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, and heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we might also be glorified with him. Paul returns to this idea of slavery, or perhaps more accurately, indentured servitude, as he introduced in chapter 6. According to Paul, the Roman Christians were once enslaved to sin, the wages of which was death. But because they have been saved 
from the law of sin and death, Paul then claims that Christians are now indebted to a new master, their Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Living under Jesus' lordship, the Roman Christians must live according to the Spirit. They must actively resist mimetic desire, which Paul describes as putting death to the deeds of the body. This detail helps answers at Paul's earlier question, who shall deliver me from the body of death? The Romans must fight and kill mimetic rivalry residing within their members through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Elsewhere in the Christian Bible, the Holy Spirit is described as a sword, an offensive weapon used to kill and destroy sin. Paul seems to use a similar idea here of directing violent action towards sin and mimetic rivalry. In this passage, Paul contrasts the flesh and the spirit. According to Paul, nothing good dwells in his flesh, that is, his physical body, which is under the control of mimetic rivalry. According to Paul, God has rescued the Christians in Rome from their own mimetic rivalry by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the Hebrew Bible, God's Spirit affects creative positive changes in the world. For example, in Genesis chapter 1, we are told the primordial earth was a desolate wasteland, but God's Spirit was hovering over the waters, ready to bring the structure and order necessary for life to thrive. Some scholars argue that this act was not itself a peaceful process as God had to overcome and subdue the agents of chaos such as the great sea monster. Yet through the agency of his spirit, God subdues his enemies, creating a new fruitful and ordered world. In the book of Judges, whenever God's Spirit comes upon a person, it empowers them with courage and an ability to save their people by defeating and overcoming their enemies with violence. In a similar vein, Paul claims that the Holy Spirit empowers Christians to create a new, fruitful and ordered life for themselves by overcoming and putting their mimetic rivalry to death. Paul continues to explain the nuances of his analogy as he argues that the Roman Christians' indentured servitude to God through the Spirit is unique because it is not characterized by fear and slavery, but freedom and adoption. In the ancient world, sons bore the image of their fathers. Not only did the son look like his father, but they commonly shared the same character, values, personality, and vocation. If you wanted to know what the father was like, you could look at the son who reflected his image. In the Christian tradition, Jesus is referred to as the son of God, which describes his likeness to God himself. John chapter 1 states that although no one has ever seen God, his glory and character have been revealed through Jesus. Building on this idea, Paul argues that through the Spirit, Christians become children of God. From a mimetic perspective, Christians become children of God as they reflect his glory and character to the world by imitating Jesus' example. Paul also introduces this idea 
that if Christians suffer in the likeness of Christ, they will also be glorified with him. We'll explore this idea more in the next episode. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.